Scripture reading for the service this afternoon is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. The second epistle of the Apostle Peter in chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter together and our text will be taken from the last part of it, verses 14 through 18. Let us now hear the word of God, 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it, will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, look for, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Dear congregation, Second Peter 
was obviously written by the Apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it is likely that he wrote it originally to the same people who he addressed in 1 Peter, the Christians scattered across several provinces in Asia Minor. The purpose of 1 Peter was to encourage the hearers to stand firm in the faith despite their trials and persecutions. And so Peter directed them over and again to the glorious future of their eternal inheritance. The purpose of 2 Peter was to direct the hearers to stand firm in the faith in the light of the rise of false teaching, which included mocking the teaching of Jesus' second coming. And so Peter reminded them of the true teachings of the gospel, including of Jesus' second coming, and how they should be living in light of that. In chapter 3, being the concluding chapter, Peter first reminds them of what chapter 1 pointed out, that they have the truth of God. He says in verse 2, Be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Then in verse 3, he reminds them of what chapter 2 said, that scoffers or false teachers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And he gives one significant example in verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then Peter reminds them in verse 8, saying, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. In other words, though he tarry, it is for a wise reason, even that the whole church would be gathered in, and then will be the end. It will be a day, that end will be a day of noise, a day of burning, he says, a day of dissolving, and implied is also then judgment, as we know from other scriptures. But then he says in verse 13, the other perspective of that day. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that congregation is our glorious, blessed hope, the blessed future of all true believers. And so this raises three questions. First, are we sure that this is our future? Second, are we actually looking forward to it? And third, and what this sermon is on or will be on, is how should we be living in light of it? Our text as mentioned, is 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 18. Our theme is living in light of our blessed hope. We will consider four points. First of all, we are to be diligent. So point one is be diligent 
to be found in peace. Be diligent to be found in peace. Our text says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in peace, and so on. We notice here, he says, to these things. Looking forward to these things. This could refer to the entire judgment, to the last day and Christ's coming, to the destruction of the world, to Christ's judging of the wicked and delivering of of the redeemed. But since the exhortation earlier in verse 11 was in light of the negative part of Christ's judgment, saying, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? This longer exhortation of our text in verses 14 through 18 seems to be more in light of the positive part of Christ's coming. As verse 13 says, that we, all true believers, according to his promise, will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, which we ought to look for and forward to. And therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, he says, to these glorious things of our promised eternal future, which which promise is certain in the Lord Jesus Christ, to all who have had their sins blotted out and and who are now right with God, being covered with with Christ's righteousness, and who are indeed beloved, beloved of God and by his people. Therefore, he says, beloved, looking forward to these things, be, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Be diligent. In other words, be zealous. Endeavor. Work hard. Try your best to be found, discovered by God, even by Christ himself, to be found living in a way that pleases him most. Not that we are saved by our works. We know that we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone but because it pleases him. And to be found by him doesn't mean that he doesn't know where we are, children. No, he is omniscient. He knows all things. He he knows where we are, who we are, what we are, and so on. This also doesn't mean that we won't die before he comes. We very well could. And then he would simply find our bodies and dead and our souls already in glory. But this means what we will be like if he were to come before we die. And even what we will be like as he already sees and and finds us now, even every day. In fact, what will he find you like today or tomorrow and throughout the week? Are we being and will we be diligent, trying our best, always to be living in a way that pleases him most? And what is that way? It is the way of peace, without spot and blameless. It is the way of peace. Peace with God, including peace of conscience. Not only by justification, as important as that is, 
but also in our life of sanctification. And so he adds, without spot and blameless. In other words, not to be living in any known sin, impurity, or sinful way, but to be living in God's way, according to his word and commandments. We're also to seek to live like this in peace with our neighbor. In other words, we are to seek to be like Christ at all times, who was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And a godly life does bring peace, not necessarily in our outward life, but in our relationship or walk with God. Now, our tendency is not to be consistently diligent in this. We might be diligent here and there, but we tend to become spiritually lazy, to go astray, and and we need to be brought back. And so this, this isn't an exhortation that we can perfectly keep, but it is an exhortation that we are to seek to perfectly keep. That is to be our aim in this life. Calvin says, Peter reasons from hope, a glorious eternal future, to its effect, the practice of a godly life. Someone else adds, if the believers look forward to living eternally in a home of righteousness on the new earth, then already on this earth they ought to practice righteousness. We are to practice godliness as a sign of the redeemed. Not only in our outward lives, but first of all in our own hearts. And not just by our, our own will, power, but by prayer. Seeking the Spirit's help in all of our needs. And by using the means of grace available including being in the Word. And when we fail, which God knows we will, then He wants us to come to Him and confess that. As 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why would He do so? Well, we know because of the One who was perfect all His life one who was perfect and who died for the imperfect, even our beloved Savior, the Prince of Peace, and the perfect Lamb of God, who was always and completely without spot, as the sacrificial, as the sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament had to be as well. And he was also always and completely blameless before God his Father. And that spotlessness and that blamelessness qualified him to be that perfect sacrifice to God for sinners, having no sin of his own. And when we find sin, then let us go to him and confess it. Now let us make sure that we keep a short record as well, not hiding anything from him, not stubbornly and knowingly continuing on in that sin, but quickly confessing our sins to him, and enjoying the peace of his forgiving grace. Let us be diligent to be found in peace. Secondly, be mindful. Be mindful of our Lord's long-suffering. Our text says in verse 15, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, 
As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. He says, consider, account, regard, be persuaded that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now we know that Christ indeed suffered on this earth. We know that he suffered long in duration, but also in, in quantity and in quality. He suffered much indeed, especially at the very end of his life, especially when he was crucified, and especially in those three hours of darkness when he suffered the greatest in his soul, the heavy wrath of his father, being forsaken of all his father's comforts. He suffered the wrath of man, of Satan, and of his father, against sin. And yet, as true as that all is, the word long-suffering here means more of patience or forbearance. And what is being referred to is his patience and not yet returning. And we are to consider this. His, his not yet coming again is indeed patience. There's so much sin and and wickedness in the world, not only then, but since then and today as well, that his patience is really extreme. It is indeed long-suffering. He sees all that goes on. He sees all the enmity and the hatred against him. He sees all the blasphemy against him, the mocking of him, the, the using of his name in vain. He sees all the persecution against his church from without and from within. He sees the false teachers and the false teaching and the calling of his word a myth by politicians. He sees all the commandments of God being hugely broken and that many are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. He sees your sins and he sees my sins. Also with his tender heart, he sees the spiritual battles of his beloved people their struggles with temptation and sin, the weakness of their sinful nature. And he sees all this year after year, generation after generation, for 2,000 years already. And yet, he hasn't come again. Why? Why is he being so patient? Why is he, so, why is he waiting? Why is that the plan? It is not because that promise is a myth. It isn't. He surely will come. It is not because sin and increased wickedness is okay. It isn't. God hates sin. Instead, it is because of salvation. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. This can be understood in two ways. First, the further preparing of those who are already saved or converted. The further preparing of them, of us, for completed salvation, which will fully take place once he returns. So we can say that the long-suffering of our Lord is for our sanctification, to better fit us for eternity, to giving us time to become more like him who we will be with. And we would do well to consider this, that Christ hasn't returned in the flesh nor has come to take us home yet, believers, 
so that we would just tread water or to allow us some moments to enjoy sinful pleasure. No, but to make us more Christ-like, more heavenly, which is for our good and our joy. Secondly, salvation here can be understood as the salvation, the conversion, the, the gathering into the church of the elect who are yet living in their sin and without Christ. The door of salvation is still open. We are still in the day or period of grace. And that time will not close until the very last elect sinner has come to salvation. And again, we are to consider this. To any unbeliever among us whose hope for eternal reconciliation with God, who we have sinned against, is not in Christ, in Christ alone, the gospel, the good news for you today is that there is still salvation. You don't have to figure out first if you are one of the elect but you are extended the good news, the promise that if you repent and believe, you will be saved. And if you do truly, which is by God's grace, then you can know that you are one of the elect. You are yet invited and commanded to come, and he will in no wise cast out. Further, for us believers... We are not only to consider this reality that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, but this truth and the consideration of it should make us more interested and more active and more prayerful in evangelism. First, because of the love that we should have anyway for the spiritual and eternal well-being of our fellow men. And second, because the sooner Christ's entire church is gathered in, the sooner we will enjoy the new heavens and earth and glory, and the more He will be glorified. Let us consider this. Let us consider these things throughout the week. Peter goes on to solidify what he was saying by next referring to the Apostle Paul. And in doing so, he, he also solidifies and vindicates what the Apostle Paul was saying since they were in agreement it's understood that Paul's writings were, were being abused and discredited by, in the churches by ungodly men, as was the promise of Christ's return. But Peter is saying that his and Paul's epistles are in agreement as the inspired word of God. These Christians who, who Peter was writing to, they, they had obviously not only heard of Paul, but also had a copy of one or more of his epistles. And they perhaps had even taken a fondness to Paul's inspired writings. In any case, Peter here endorses Paul. And when two are in agreement, that makes what each says stronger, especially when they teach the same things. And they both taught that Christ is indeed returning, even though he tarries. And that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Peter said, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. 
Interestingly, we see here Peter's own progress in sanctification, further preparing him for his completed salvation. He calls Paul our beloved brother. At one point, Peter and Paul weren't exactly like that. They had had a disagreement, and Paul had to withstand Peter to the face. But he was able to get over that and now call him with all his heart, beloved brother. He also pointed out that Paul's epistles, not only the one or ones that they had a copy of, perhaps Romans or or, or Hebrews, if Paul indeed is the author of that, but all of his inspired epistles were written by a wisdom that was not his own, but which was given to him being led by the Holy Spirit implying that his were too. Paul's and his epistles were therefore the word of God. And Christ is therefore indeed returning. And his long-suffering, therefore, and not returning yet, is indeed for salvation. And Peter is saying, let us consider that. Not only the, the one truth that Christ is returning, but also the other truth that his long-suffering is for salvation, for our further sanctification, but also for the conversion of the rest of the elect. And so, with our eye on the return of Christ, let us go forward with interest, with activity, and with prayer for the salvation of the lost. The third exhortation of how we are to live in light of our blessed hope, is found in the rest of verse 16, as well as verse 17. It is to be careful of falling from steadfastness. Be careful of falling from steadfastness. Having just mentioned Paul's epistles, he continued with that subject of them and pointed out in which are some things, he says, hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This is also how we are to live in light of our blessed hope, by being careful. We notice here, for one thing, that Peter again endorses the epistles of Paul, acknowledging that they are indeed part of the Scriptures, saying that certain people twist them as they do the rest of the Scriptures, however much they had at that point. And Peter may also have emphasized Paul because of simply the great importance of his epistles, especially that of Romans. In fact, Romans has been said to be the greatest letter ever written. It is the best doctrinal letter in the Bible. And as we have imperfect minds and are not always spiritually in tune as we should be, and especially since the natural man cannot understand the things that are spiritual, it is understandable that some things in them, he says, are hard to understand for the believer and especially for the false confessor and non-confessor. 
This can be true for other parts or teachings of Scripture as well. Some doctrines are also simply hard to fully understand because we are not told everything about them. For example, what the new heavens and earth and righteousness will all be like. Or they are simply too great to fully understand, for example, the Trinity. Scripture is clear when it comes to the doctrine of salvation and and many other things, and so we should not be discouraged from reading them, but there are some things that are hard to fully understand. And not only doctrines, but some verses as well. And this can be very frustrating. But the way to respond to these parts is with self-examination and faith and humility. We must examine our prayer life and in our walk with God, are we living in dependence on the Holy Spirit and praying for his filling, his guidance, his blessing? Are we meditating on scripture and our devotions and, and reading on a regular basis? We must also trust God's wisdom for not fully revealing everything, or for not enabling us to fully understand everything. And we, must, we must be humble as well in being okay with that and accepting that. Now, in addition to pointing out that there are some things hard to understand in Scripture, including in Paul's epistles, especially to the natural man, Peter warns his readers to be careful because there are some or many people who twist them, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. They twist them. They distort or hugely misinterpret. They essentially torture. They force Scripture to say what it doesn't say and what doesn't agree with the rest. This often isn't just an honest mistake either, but it is intentional. They have an agenda in order to justify their own lusts. Peter calls these people untaught and unstable. Untaught doesn't simply mean that they are uneducated. Many indeed have a great secular education and even a great knowledge of the Scriptures but they have not actually truly learned them as a sinner seeking to be fed instead of a proud person seeking to become prouder. And they have not truly been taught by Christ. He says they are also unstable. With this term, James says that such a person is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. They have no sure footing, foundation, They are easily deceived. They're easily distracted. They're easily moved with a false interpretation. And as a result, these people twist what the word actually says. The harder parts, yes, and the rest of the scriptures. They distort it. They end up teaching foolish and absurd and even wicked things. They become heralds of significant errors and even wicked practices. In short, they do not teach the true gospel at all that can save our souls alone. But they teach what Paul says elsewhere is a false gospel. And those who do that or who fall from that false teaching, Peter says, do so to their own destruction, eternal destruction, if they do not repent and become teachable truly. So Peter warns of this, and he says to his readers and to us today, You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you you also fall 
from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. You, beloved, who have been taught by Christ, who have stability in Christ, since you know that there have been, are, and will be false teachers and false teaching, beware of being seduced and falling from your own steadfastness, from your present faithfulness, and being led away by error, of being deceived by the great enemy of our souls and by ungodly men. We know, we know that true believers cannot lose their salvation because it has been purchased by Christ. Those, though, who completely and forever turn their backs on Christ, then were never indeed true believers at all. But true believers can and still do fall, go astray from time to time, as I am sure you can acknowledge yourself as well. And sometimes this can happen in great measure even, for a time, with God's permission. And this isn't only possible for new converts, but of any Christian. And so we must all be careful, he says, on the alert, spiritually diligent, keeping a faithful walk with God. When we hear something, compare Scripture with Scripture. Take heed when we stand in our own security, lest we fall. Interestingly, do not be like Peter himself, who felt so secure and was adamant that he would never deny his master. And then what happened, children? He so easily did three times. But let us be diligent. Instead, let us put on the armor of God of Ephesians 6. Let us encourage each other in the faith and be encouraged ourselves in God's promises and in the prayers of our great intercessor, the Lord Jesus. And let us pray that we would continue to stand firm, as one commentator says, unshaken, even in the most stormy of times. Well, are you and will you be diligent in remaining steadfast in your faith as it is taught in truth in God's word? Or is there anyone here or listening who is indeed and who knows it, you are among the wicked, who twists or believes and delights in it too, the twisting of God's word with regard to significant truths and to your own destruction? Well, so far... In addressing how we are to live, in light of our blessed hope, Peter has exhorted us to be diligent, to be found in peace, to be mindful of our Lord's long-suffering, to be careful of falling from steadfastness. And now, fourth and last, he exhorts us in verse 18 to be growing, to be growing in grace and knowledge. We notice that this is a continuation of a sentence. And for good reason, because it is in contrast to what came before. Before he said, beware lest you fall. But here he says, but grow. Instead of falling, be growing. Instead of spiritually withering, drying out, becoming easy pickings for the enemy, be growing, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But grow. 
in grace, he says. This implies that the true believer already has grace to grow. We have undeservedly received grace. It is the grace of, in, and through our Lord Jesus Christ. Included in that is the inward calling, the new birth, repentance, and faith in conversion, and some progress already in sanctification and assurance as well. But now we are not to just put cruise control on. If we are not growing in grace, then that is what we have done. Or we are slowing down, which is dangerous. It makes us rusty. It makes us vulnerable, ready to fall. Instead, for our own good, we are to seek to grow in the grace that God has given to us. It really is the only way of staying steadfast. We are to seek the Spirit's help in prayer. And use the means of grace available to grow in sanctification in our walk with God, in communion with Him, in our trust in Him, in our appreciation of His goodness. And humility, growing in humility, decreasing in our own self-estimation and increasing our great value, valuing of our redeeming Savior, the Lord Jesus. Growing in grace also includes growing in our adoring of God, of the confessing of our sins to Him, of being thankful to Him and praying to Him, interceding for ourselves and others. It also includes growing in our biblical character. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. In faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. We are not, we not only all continue to have room to grow, but we are redeemed to grow, to show the grace of God. And so we need to be active in this growing process. And so are you indeed active in growing? We should want to, not to be praised by others, but for God's honor and our Savior's praise. If we have no interest in growing in grace, then it is time to wake up because you have either then fallen already and are in an unhealthy spiritual slumber or you are not a true Christian. We are to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are also to grow in the knowledge of him. And this includes three things. One, knowledge about him, his person and work. Two, knowledge of all other Christian doctrines, since they are all in relation to him, including the Father and the Spirit. And three, knowledge of relationship with him. To grow in our relationship with him, within our identity in him, our communion and intimacy with him. And when we look at that knowledge in all these ways, then it is easy to see that here too there truly is no end to growing in it. And interestingly, again, this growing in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ goes hand in hand with our growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't want to grow in the ways of grace, then we won't really grow in knowledge. And if you don't want to grow in knowledge, then we won't really grow in grace. But let us seek to do both, as it says, to be kept from falling and to praise our God and Savior as we live in light of our blessed hope.
And so our text ends with these words of doxology to him, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. And this is a a great proof text for the deity of Christ. Since only God is to be worshipped, but here it says Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said how suitable this glory to Christ is. He said, to him be the glory because he is God, because of what he has done, because of his position and glory now, because of what he is going to do, and because of what he has done for me. And on that last reason, because of what he has done for me, we can say because we have been so blessed receiving the grace and knowledge of him, our Lord and Savior. So glorifying him for that should be our greatest interest. And we glorify him for that when we also seek to grow more in that and ultimately nearer to him. And so congregation, are you growing in Christ? Are you also glorifying Christ? Are you growing in glorifying Christ as you live in light of your blessed hope of one day being with him in glory in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, which we can and ought to be looking forward to. Yes, as we wait for that day, let us seek to glorify him always with our whole hearts and lives and being diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and considering that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, and being careful lest you fall from your own steadfastness, and in growing in the grace and knowledge of him. And to any and to all who are not interested in any of these things, who have not turned to Christ and put your trust in him, he will also be glorified in your eternal destruction one day, if you remain that way, yet in your sins and guilt before God. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of your death is coming. And it will come as a thief in the night. And then it will be too late. But today is still the day of grace in the long-suffering of our Lord. And so come, ask Him to give you saving grace, to give you saving knowledge, and come as you are, as a sinner. Confess your sins to Him. Give your life to Him. And put your trust in him for eternity. Amen. May God bless his word.